WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Scientists estimate that we've only discovered 1% of all fungal species. To tell us more about their research on fungi, we're here talking to Alyssa Ball. Thanks for joining us today, Alyssa. May you please tell us more about your research with fungi? Of course. Thanks for having me. So yeah, like you said, we know very little about fungal species on our planet. That includes in the ocean, on the surface of the earth, as well as deep within the layers of rock. We're working to taxonify, which means we're trying to name all of the different species and distinguish all of their different genetics right now. It's nice to meet you, Alyssa. It was really interesting to learn that we only really know 1% of the fungi that exist out there. But really quickly, what's the difference between fungi and animals and plants? So fungi are very different from animals and plants, as well as bacteria. They're their own kingdom. Fungi include mold, yeasts, as well as what we know as mushrooms. So the mushrooms are actually the edible fruiting body of mycelium, which is what fungi is made up of. So mycelium and fungi, they're very different due to the way that they process things. For example, they use enzymes very similar to animals and us humans to break down their foods, but they do that on the outside. They do it extracellularly. So unlike plants that take things in and have internal photosynthesis, mushrooms, fungi, molds, and yeasts those will be secreting things to allow them to break down nutrients in our soil, in the water, and generally in the environment. That's really cool. I didn't actually realize that molds were a part of the fungi kingdom. So you briefly mentioned that you all were trying to characterize these fungi based on their genetic characteristics. What are you specifically trying to do with that and how? So we want to understand the genetics of different fungi, specifically because we think they can be used for remediation of a lot of contamination that we've got going on right now, specifically heavy metals, PFAS, and other chemicals of concern. So by identifying fungal species, giving them species names, knowing their genetics, we can then test them to see if they are useful at breaking down molecules that are stubborn to break down and contaminate our earth. Oh, so heavy metal like the music? I wish. Nah, I'm kidding. But in all seriousness, are there places that need to be cleaned up from heavy metal contamination? Yes, there are actually tons of sites that are contaminated with heavy metals. Almost all of the industries that we use and participate in, from manufacturing of plastics to fabrics to dyes, include the use of heavy metals. Therefore, they get dumped into our environment afterwards. A lot of these sites are what we refer to as Superfund sites or Brownsfield sites, Those have been classified by federal agencies as sites that are deemed unsafe for people to live on or grow food on and are in need of immediate remediation. We actually recently had an episode about PFAS. 
And regarding whether it's PFOS or even heavy metals, whenever the fungi absorb it, do they necessarily break it down or do they just keep it there? I'm wondering this because what happens whenever they degrade? Wouldn't the heavy metals or the PFOS just end up back in the earth? You have a really great point there. In some instances, you could think yes. But the cool thing about fungi is the way they interact with metals. They have an ability to deionize metals into an elemental form or a form that is not toxic. Metals can be charged, which make them more reactive. When something is more reactive, you can sort of think of it as being more dangerous. So what the fungi do are able to change the elemental form of the metal so that it is more usable by plants and less toxic to humans, which makes fungi a great candidate for remediation. Bacteria have also been shown to do this, which is where we got the idea from originally to look at fungi. But bacteria don't have as many interesting capabilities as fungi do specifically the enzymes that they use to change these metals into less toxic forms. It's really interesting. It kind of mixes the field of physical chemistry as well as biology. However, what are the differences between the mechanisms when a fungi is dealing with heavy metals versus something organic like PFAS, for example? Is it easier for fungi to deal with one versus the other? Interesting question. We are just starting to research PFAS, so it's a difficult question to answer whether fungi are better at taking up PFAS or heavy metals. Heavy metals, though, show a lot of promise due to the fungi's capability to actually change the charge of the metal. So because fungi use their enzymes to change the pH, so the acidity or the basicness of the soil around them, they are able to manipulate the metals much easier than they are able to break the bonds in a PFAS compound. PFAS are fluorinated compounds. They're a fluorine attached to a carbon, and it is a very strong bond to break. So it takes a lot of energy. Fungi, though, possibly could have those capabilities with their enzymes with future research, which is why we're interested. Whenever I picture fungi growing, I think of it growing like in a forest under some shaded tree. However, these heavy metals and PFAS are not only in those environments. What types of fungi are you growing and what kinds of environments can they thrive in? That's a great question, actually. The main species of fungi that we are looking at is called Aspergillus. There is a lot of previous research on this species, so we think it has a lot of promise. But as I previously mentioned, we have made great progress in identifying new species, so we are also testing those as well. Another good point you made was that contamination is not limited to ideal environments where fungi are usually found. That is the other amazing thing about fungi. They are incredibly diverse, and we have found them on almost every surface across the earth. Fungi are found in streams, in lakes, in small ponds, in ditches, as well as throughout our soil, on trees, and on rocks. So we approached this by looking for fungi from extreme locations. In our case, we collected fungi from a contaminated copper mine. 
hoping to find fungi that were already very tolerant to high levels of copper. Species like this are called extremophiles, and they're very useful when trying to combat issues of remediation or new issues that come up in our everyday lives. So it sounds like this project has really started in two different areas, but you're all going towards the same direction, trying to understand the diversity of the different fungi that exist. I could understand why one would want to just start with fungi that are already found in an environment that you're interested in cleaning up, but then what's the motivation of starting from the opposite direction where you're just trying to codify the genome sequences for all of these different fungi? That's a really great question, actually. So the importance of identifying and giving names to all the fungi allows us to do more specific research on each species. A lot of fungi are symbiotic with plants as well as the microbiome that they are within, and they're a very integral part of that. So being able to know what species we're exactly working with gives us a great starting point if we wanted to use those genetics in any other type of way, such as CRISPR or some other kind of biological engineering. Now, when you say biological engineering, would you be able to maybe edit these fungi to grow in, for example, cold environments or all throughout the year and to do what you'd really want it to do? Correct. In a nutshell, by understanding what the genes are at play, we can sort of build our own organism that might be perfect for the job, making tackling very diversely contaminated areas, areas that have many different types of contaminants that are not compatible with one treatment method. This means that we might be able to create a new method to handle specific environments. When it comes to the fungi that you're working with, have there been any genes that have been identified whenever you're doing your DNA analysis that help the fungi deal with these either heavy metals or organic molecules? Yes, that's actually a good point. Some of these genes that fungi are using code for different enzymes that they're using. These enzymes are essentially different types of saliva that the fungi are using to break down very complex molecules. One of those molecules is lignin. This is what trees are made of. It's a very difficult molecule to break down. So by searching through fungi that have these genes that are able to break down difficult molecules, that is a hint to us that other fungi that have these genes may also be able to break down difficult molecules. Now, I know that you mentioned that you all have fungi from copper mines. Is this just one type of fungi that you have, or do you have several types maybe from various areas? Yes, that's a great question to ask. We actually found 15 different types of fungi at the contaminated copper mine that we went to. We are also using five other types of fungi found throughout Michigan at Superfund site that are contaminated with high amounts of heavy metals. A big reason why this topic is interesting for me is because I often think about how bacteria have been proposed to be used for dealing with radioactive waste. Uranium being a heavy metal itself and the fission products that get released as well whenever nuclear energy is being operated. Radioactive waste has been a big concern when it comes to how do you deal with it once the nuclear fuel rods have been depleted. 
And I'm curious if the radioactivity with these associated heavy metals could impact how the fungi are able to deal with it. Has your lab looked at that or considered it? Yes, actually, we started thinking about radioactivity. We actually started with the idea of radioactivity in mind. The Chernobyl nuclear plant, a very known nuclear operating plant that had a devastating explosion, is one of the biggest destruction sites for nuclear radiation. Mushrooms were discovered there in 1991, actually, where they were fruiting out radioactive isotopes. These mushrooms were able to grow healthily in the soil. The mycelium was growing healthily, and then they were able to fruit out the radioactive waste. These are considered radiotrophic organisms, fungi and bacteria that feed off of the radiation and use that as energy. So in short, yes, fungi can also be an answer to cleaning up nuclear waste as well. We still in that case, though, need to have a final decontamination method for getting rid of the radioactive isotopes out of the mushrooms. Well, that's really exciting, Alyssa. Hopefully you all really could figure out a way to get those radioactive isotopes out of the fungi. Now to talk a little bit about yourself, you have so many different projects going on over here. What is your favorite part about working in this lab and on this particular topic that we've been discussing? I would definitely have to say that my favorite part has been my ability to collaborate with so many different parts of our university here. I've been able to work with four different labs, six different professors, nine undergrads, and at least 10 graduate and PhD students. This project has really given me the opportunity to see how real science takes place It's given me an opportunity to make a real difference in the world, and it's been really exciting, most of all, to be able to connect all of these people and see how excited we all are to accomplish something at the end of the day. I completely resonate with that feeling. It's the reason why I study nuclear physics, because I want to help make a positive impact on the world around me, and I'm glad that we have people like you studying these kinds of things as well. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alyssa. It was really interesting to hear about your work. Thank you so much for having me. It is amazing to tell the world about fungi and all the amazing uses that we have for them. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Scifiles, and remember, the truth is in the science. WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to the Sci Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Historically, Lake Herring migrated to Michigan and were also stocked in Michigan, being native to areas such as the Appalachian Mountains and the southern Illinois Missouri region, too. We have people who are researching these Lake Herrings. One of those people studying Lake Herring is Grant Brennica. Grant is a student here at Michigan State University. I'll let him tell you more about his research. Thanks for joining us today, Grant. Thanks for having me on. Like I was introduced, I am Grant Brennica. I am a freshman here at Michigan State University. I do research involving the genetic analyses of Lake Herring in the molecular ecology lab 
here at Michigan State. And my research looks at the genetic diversity and difference between populations of lake herring in Michigan, as well as the Great Lakes. Nice to meet you, Grant. You said that you're studying the genetic differences between different populations of lake herring. Can you also determine the origin of where those lake herring come from based off of this information? There's definitely ways to assume origins of lake herring based off of certain genetic differences that have been proved to be from different areas um, ancestrally. So there are two different regions that lake herring originally came from, one from the eastern United States, east of the Appalachian Mountains in the Atlantic region, and also a southern region we call the Mississippi region in the Mississippi River, and they migrated north into Michigan as well. So there are some pretty distinct differences genetically between these fish, and their genotypes can really help us determine that. And did their genetics change because of the location that they're living in? Would it also vary across the different lakes in Michigan? Yes, it does. And our results have been pretty compelling in proving that. There's a difference in genetics in Lake Herring based on where they are geographically in Michigan. So there's a lot of similar genetics in similar geographic locations, like near the Detroit region has a lot of specific genetics, and as opposed to things near the Upper Peninsula that have different genetics than those of Detroit. So there is a pretty distinct difference between these fish, and they all together help the genetic diversity of the species as a whole. When it comes to the concentration of different lake herring populations, where in the Great Lakes region would you usually find them? In the open seas like Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, or in more inland lakes? Lake herring can be found in both conditions. They really thrive in deep and cold water, so the Great Lakes are a great way to do that. The Great Lakes have very deep water, especially out in the middle. Um, and they have cold water, but there's also types of lakes that we study called kettle lakes, which are inland lakes, but they're formed by glacial depressions back when glaciers covered North America. As they receded, they created these depressions in the ground and filled up with water, and they are those deep cold water lakes that Lake Herring thrive in as well. Now that's a lot of lakes that you're studying. Are you physically going out there and fishing for these Lake Herring, or do you have someone who's providing these for you? Our lab works very closely with the Michigan Department of Natural Resources. They are a great asset for us to go out and collect these fish from all these different lakes and from the Great Lakes at different locations. Our lab works with genetic analyses of a bunch of different species, all of which are collected by the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, and they commission us to do some of the genetic work and genetic analyses on these fish. So they are the ones that go out and collect them and we get little samples of these fish's fins after they trim them and send them in envelopes to our lab to analyze genetically. This kind of brings me back to the question I asked earlier about whether or not you're able to determine the origin of where these lake herring come from. In my earlier question, I was suggesting whether you're able to determine whether they migrated from a specific location like the Appalachians, for example. But now I'm more curious about the concentration of fish that you're collecting for your genetic studies. Are you getting your fish samples from the kettle lakes that you had described earlier or from the Great Lakes? Or a little mix of a both? The entire study has been going on for a couple of years now. The lakes that I studied, particularly for my project, are all kettle lakes here inland in Michigan. But the previous locations have been all over Michigan as well as some Great Lakes samples. So they all got meshed together at the end. 
once my work on the Kettle Lakes was done to compare all of that between each other. So it, it was really trying to figure out how in every body of water that heron can be found in Michigan as a sample, what the genetic diversity of the species is in Michigan to just really get a status and a feel for how many are left, how stable they are, and what we can do about them to sustain them for the future. That's a lot of data that you would have to collect and analyze. Are you the one who's doing those genetic analyses, or are you doing the data analysis and collection? As part of my project, I did a little bit of both. I got those envelopes with the fins in them and extracted the DNA from them for analyses. But also, once those were done, computer programs helped us a lot to kind of just map out where all these different genetic populations are. So it's a little bit of both as part of the project, and it's been a project that's been worked on for years now, really, and my work has been a continuation onto it. So it is a long-term process, but overall it gives us a good view of what the state of Michigan has in terms of lake herring diversity. Now let's take it a step back for our audience to understand how do you actually extract DNA from these fin clippings? Do you blend it, or is there some sort of procedure that you're using? These fin clips run through a what is called a Kyogen DNA kit. Kyogen is the company that makes these DNA extraction kits. But really, we take a small piece of these fin clips and we run them through different buffers or different liquids used scientifically to separate out all the different parts of cells, of tissues, to really break down everything to get to that DNA level. So it runs through a lot of different buffers, a lot of different filters, And it finally gets us down to a liquid that just has DNA in it that we can then use for the analyses. Yeah, I'm familiar with those kits. We use those also in my lab for bacterial DNA extraction. So after you have these DNA extracts, what do you do with it afterwards? These DNA are then run through a process called PCR, or polymerase chain reaction, where we look for different loci, which are locations on the DNA that we know from previous research are polymorphic or have different genotypes or different identities across different individual fish. For some fish, the DNA is the same in the same locations for every fish because it codes for something that is important in every fish. However, these specific locations that we look at are different between individuals and really show diversity. So PCR takes these individual regions, we can prime them to be replicated over and over and over and over and over again so that we can take a look at specifically that region and what the genotype is for that region to see across individuals if their genotypes are different, if they're heterozygous and have two alleles for that genotype, or if they're homozygous and only have one. So we have run 13 different locations on these fish. All these different locations go into calculating that genetic diversity. As part of a genetic identity or location of DNA, as I mentioned before, alleles are different parts of a gene code for different proteins throughout the body or throughout the fish in this example. So each at each location, there are two alleles. The alleles individually determine how these proteins are coded. So heterozygotes are individuals that have two different alleles for the same location, and they can combine to create a unique protein, or in most cases, one allele dominates the other and is called dominant, and therefore 
what is coded as what you see on the animal or on a fish is due to the coding on that allele. Homozygotes have the exact same allele twice, so the only protein that they can code is the one on that allele. I remember learning a little bit about this whenever I was taking high school biology back in the day. And as I understood, these genotypes can then convert into what are known as phenotypes, or the physical attributes that are associated with each genotype. When it comes to the lake herring, what particular physical attributes are you looking for when it comes to understanding the diversity of these different fish? So a lot of what physical properties come of the genotypes at these locations that we're looking at are very internal. They're not anything that can really be seen on the fish for the most part and are not really things that are all that important for survival of the fish, but are truly different among each individual. And that's really what we look for to do these genetic diversity studies because we don't want to have a location where everybody's coded for the same thing. So we really want to take a look at genes that are known to be different in each individual to show how much diversity is truly in the population. Whenever the DNR is gathering these clippings for you, are they doing it at a certain season? Because I would imagine that certain genes are expressed in the summer versus in the winter. A lot of these collections happen through the spring and summer months. They put out what is called gill nets, which are these long nets that are placed in the water and trap the fish so that we can pull up the nets and then get a fin from them. And these nets obviously can't be put in water that has ice frozen over it or things like that. So a lot of these collections happen in spring and summer. But these genes are ones that usually don't change by season. We try to take a look at genes that are constant and are also diverse. So there's a lot of research backing these exact locations. Since there are millions of locations on a DNA strand that we can look at, we really narrow down the ones that are constant, that are different between individuals, and that we can use to measure diversity accurately. I'm familiar with how large these very famous fish in Michigan known as Lake Sturgeon can be, but how does that compare to the size of the Lake Herring? Compared to Lake Sturgeon, Lake Herring are very small. These fish can get between 8 and 10 inches, so definitely not as big as sturgeon that can get feet on feet long. So these lake herring are small, they are silver, they're these sleek looking fish, almost minnows, but just larger at 8 to 10 inches. And they really serve that purpose in the environment in lakes in Michigan to be a prey species, really, for recreationally important fish like salmon, for example, in the Great Lakes. And they also are great indicators of ecosystem health since they are very intolerant to warming and poor quality water. So as much as they are small, they serve a very large purpose in the environment in the Great Lakes as well as lakes throughout Michigan. Since lake herring are prey species, are they, for example, endangered or are they maybe about to be endangered because there are so many different factors that can bring down their population? That's one of the big factors in this research is that lake herring serve a lot of important purposes, like I said, that are important to humans. Like salmon fishing is a big recreational sport, especially in the Great Lakes, and herring are required for that as the salmon eat those. There's also a commercial use for salmon. That is, there's a big human fishing market for herring as well. And for those reasons, lake herring have taken a decline in their population along with global warming as they thrive in cold water and global warming is not helping that at all. 
as well as poor quality water, the increase in pollution and increase in chemical runoff that comes from factories around lakes. So there's a lot of factors that are leading to the herring being endangered. They're classified as a state threatened species in the state of Michigan. And that's what this research is all about, is this is one piece of the puzzle to a Michigan wildlife action plan that the Michigan Department of Natural Resources is drafting for the federal government to receive funding for an endangered species, in this case, the lake herring. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Sci-Files. I really do appreciate you sharing the work that you've done. I'm really excited to hear about any sort of future work that you're able to perform with these lake herring. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on, and I'd be happy to give everybody updates. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.